What if a conversation could change your mind about yourself and about the world? What if a conversation could one day lead to a change in government policy? I'm Dr. Mark Halloran, and you're listening to Deep Trouble. Hi and welcome. We are back in the studios of uh, 94.9 Main FM. I'm Steve Proposh, editor of Trouble Magazine. And I'm Dr. Mark Allerton. And you are in deep trouble. So here we are, Mark, back in the studios of Main FM to record another Deep Trouble Let's talk about the interview this week. Sure. It's Tim Errington. Yes. From the Centre of Open Science. Yeah, so Tim Errington is the metadata science manager of the Centre for Open Science, which is a centre which is funded by the John and Laura Arnold Foundation. John Arnold is an American billionaire and hedge fund manager who is interested in philanthropy and wanted to find the most effective place that he could send his money to in terms of scientific research and what he found was that there was a lack of reproducibility within science a failure at the phase two level clinical trials and human trials so he wanted to find out what was going on and so that center was uh, established right so this is about reproducibility of, of experiments we covered this a little bit with jennifer Byrne. can you tell us the differences in this interview Uh, So I guess the main difference would be in the Jennifer Byrne interview, Jennifer's really talking about uh, cases of fraud within Chinese laboratories uh, and the issues uh, related to that, whereas the interview with Tim Errington is about a general concern around what's happening within the culture of science, which includes science throughout the world uh, and across disciplines as well. The contention of Tim and the Centre for Open Science is that science is in a state of crisis to some extent, and the crisis is one of reproducibility. So the philosopher Thomas Kuhn said that um, reproducibility was the natural state of normal science, which is reproducibility is where if I conduct a study and I release the results and they're significant, another scientist can come along and take my methodology and my statistical methods Mm. and reproduce my study to see whether they can find the same results. And because of lots of uh, political and economic funding decisions that currently occur, reproducibility doesn't occur in science as often as it should. So this is about the pressure to publish as well, isn't it? And be seen in those major journals in order to have funding continue. You need significant results and no result doesn't guarantee any any further funding. It's it's that sort of pressure that's on science these days? Yeah, you can't get by with with null results. You, you, You can't start a career with null results. It's the pressure to get into nature, to get into science, to get into cell. And we're talking about some of the ramifications of that. Which I might add, if you listen to the interview, seem dire. Okay, well, looking forward to this one once again. Another episode of Deep Trouble. Let's get into it. (laughs) 
So could you start off by telling me a little bit about what the Centre for Open Science is and what the Centre hopes to achieve? So the Center for Open Science, we're a nonprofit organization that's committed to increasing reproducibility, uh, openness, and integrity of scientific research. Um, and that's agnostic to discipline. And so we do this through uh, three main activities. Um, we're foremost a technology company. We are providing free open source technology uh, for researchers to basically make it easier for them to be able to make more of their research open. We do some community work that is to work with uh, various incentive drivers within the scientific enterprise, so journals, funders, institutions, to try to align the incentives to basically encourage researchers and reward researchers for being more open and rigorous in their, their research. The part that I lead is meta-science, uh, so research on research. Um, so essentially trying to take a step back and say, what, what does our current research enterprise look like? And if there's any type of incentive that we want to use to change, how does that look? You know, do we do we actually get the the outcome that we want? And so in the end, what we're hoping to achieve by all of this is to work in concert to essentially encourage, you know, more transparency, more openness in the research process that allows more scrutiny, more rigorous design trying to actually pull in some of the aspects that occur in clinical research, such as registrations, and bring that into preclinical designs uh, to essentially increase that rigor um, that we think overall actually leads to an increase in efficiency. All right, this is really about uh, putting the best foot forward and being resourceful, and, you know, conscious of how we're using our resources so that way we can you know, achieve any given research area as quickly and as efficiently as possible. The thing that I was interested in, because my background, uh, I did an undergraduate and an honours degree in psychology, but then I moved on to doing a PhD in biochemistry and molecular biology. So I guess there's two arms of the research that are interesting to me. The first one was the first reproducibility project was in relation to psychological research. What your centre found was the original studies, which had been taken from top-tier journals that 97% of the original studies had significant results and um, 36% of the uh, replications had significant results. So there's a massive discrepancy between the two findings. Yeah, yeah, and that's, and that's you picked up on one of the ways that that was measured, right? You picked up on statistical significance, which is a, you know, one of many ways that, that one can kind of try to rapple, you know, kind of wrap their heads around, like, what does it mean to get the same result? But even with the other measures, right, like the size of the effects, you know, the effect size, you know, even subjective assessment, right, asking, you know, the people who did the, the replications, do you think this replicated? All of those were below 50 percent, right? They kind of sat in this, you know, 35 to 40 percent ish range, which, you know, none of them are perfect in terms of like, you know, what constitutes a success or not. But you're right that it's there's room for improvement is probably the, the best way to put that. And there's, there's many reasons why those could be off, right? Um, you know, part of it is the way that we design our experiments. Psychology is no different than cancer biology and any other field, which is sample size is a big problem. So if you're doing a study with a very small sample size, there's a good chance that you're probably going to find some statistically significant effect. But if somebody comes back through, they're not going to find the same thing, especially if they increase their sample size uh, accordingly and appropriately. And so I think that was that was a big part of it, which was just the design, just the way that those experiments were being designed. Another big one that you can't really point the finger at um, in terms of saying, oh, this did or didn't, you know, is or is not a reason. 
is it's very common in many fields, especially that ones that are driven by statistical significance as a way to get things published is to p-hack, right? To essentially kind of analyze the data multiple ways until you finally find one way that pops out that less than 0.05 statistical significant result. Data mining. Exactly. Data mining. Yeah. And I, and that's fine if you're exploring. That's fine if you're trying to shift and look for some pattern that you then want to test. But it doesn't work when you actually try to sit there and say, oh, look, this is what I found. I think this is what's going on. So when those replications were done, everything was defined beforehand what the test was going to be. Right. So bef- before they even did the experiment, they said, this is what we're planning on doing. This is how we're going to analyze our data. This is how many participants we're going to enroll in our survey, for instance. Um, and that's not traditionally how, how psychological research is done. Uh, really, outside of clinical research, um, nobody really does that. And I think that changes things a lot too, right? Because now, instead of saying, oh, I'm going to dig through the, the data, hunting for something that is statistically significant, I'm instead being more confirmatory in my research, saying, well, if I think there's an actually an effect there, it should exist, right? I should be able to test and see if it exists. And I think the psychology project was a good example of, you know, what happens when you do that, right? You don't see as many significant results. And, you know, whether those are, are real or not, you know, you can always go into to further research and say, well, maybe maybe the size of the effect is smaller. You need more people to see the effect. Either way, I think it's a really good awakening in terms of the way the research should be done, which is, you know, instead of sitting there data mining, hunting for something that's statistically significant just so you can get it published, it's probably a lot better to sit there and define up front what you're planning to do and making sure you're um, being as rigorous as you can in that design and analysis strategy. We probably should explain to people the importance of reproducibility within scientific research. Actually, the beauty of science is, you know, you don't just believe somebody, you can actually go and you should be able to recreate the result or at least dig through it and, and fully understand how they arrived at that result. And that's that's kind of all of what reproducibility is wrapped into, right, is that essentially confirmation is not quite the right word. It's more of that ability to go through and for oneself, see if you can get a similar result or at least follow through the entire process in a way that's fully understandable. So basically, I think the idea is that when someone produces a piece of work that finds something that's important or significant, I don't believe them just because they're an expert. I then test their theory and test their results myself. Absolutely right. And that's the beauty of science, right? Is it's not about who that person is, where they are, where that information was published, where that paper was published. It's exactly what you said, is that anybody should be able to go back and understand it and test it again themselves. Um, and, and there's multiple degrees of that, but um, in terms of just the analysis or, or redoing the whole experiment again. But yeah, that type of information, that type of full transparency and that ability to have a result that can be repeated over and over again is a hallmark of science. One thing I think that's important that for whatever reason we've kind of forgotten, take, take psychology, take what we were just talking about, and somebody does some experiment within a you know, United States population and somebody else tries to replicate it in Australia. And the population is not exactly the same, but there's no reason to think that you wouldn't obtain the exact same result, whatever that finding is. If it turns out that you can't, and and both results are completely valid, right? There's no reason not to. They're both well done. Then it actually tells you the limitations of that outcome. And I think that's actually really important for us to understand, right? Is that's, that's kind of what we're trying to do in science is we're not trying to prove something. We're actually constantly trying to look to disprove something. I mean, that is slightly a separate issue, isn't it? I mean, that shows scientific rigor. That is showing that something is not generalizable from one population, if that's the explanation that the researcher gives. 
Right. And I think that's part of it because it's right now it's pretty commonplace because we're trying to sell our results, which is kind of a, a funny way to think about it. Right. We're trying to sell our results to get them published so we can get grants, so we can get jobs. And we're generally basically we're overgeneralizing everything. Um, and we do that because it's more exciting. Right. Nobody wants to hear about some result that only, you know, holds weight in a small town in Wisconsin. You know, they, they want to know about, oh, this is the next big thing. And I think the the danger in that is, well, one, you know, that's it's nice because it gets attention. But the danger is if you've never tested that, you just completely overstated something. You never put the limitations of what that research has, which all research has limitations. So I think part of this entire, you know, the psychology project, a lot of this discussion that's going around this is basically remembering to put those constraints because it's important not to overgeneralize. So, I mean, from there are 100 papers that were published in 2008 and three high-ranking psych journals. The reproducibility project was only able to reproduce somewhere between a third and a half of the original findings. How did the researchers respond to that? The original researchers? Uh, well, <laughs> I think uh, probably a good sum uh, uh, in terms of like what that approach was, was looking at Dan Gilbert's response. Dan Gilbert is a, a researcher, a psychology researcher at Harvard who wrote a critique to the way that the psychology project was done and the way that the results are presented. And I think that's a good one, which is there's a bit of denial. There is no problem. You know, there's a bit of looking at it. Actually, the reason I bring up the generalizability is because that was part of that critique was saying, oh, well, you, you overextended the results. You know, that, that was done in Germany, it should not have been, you know, repeated in the United States, or if it was, it wasn't done the right way. And again, that's, it's pretty easy to do that after the fact, right? The results aren't that powerful, really, then are they? That's right. I think all scientists, we do this, we look, all humans do this, we look for patterns. And I think, even if somebody says, is there no reason not to think this is gonna, you know, replicate, you know, if the original author says, yep, I think that's a good design, go ahead, do it. If the result comes back counter to what, what they thought and what their original research was, they start to look for a problem, right? They start to say, oh, well, actually, that wasn't the best design. Oh, you should have done X, Y, Z. And I think we do that because we're trying to protect, you know, that original result. Or we're trying to protect our research. Some of that is part of academic culture as well, which is probably one of the strengths of academic culture. So you are placed whenever you're proposing research for a PhD or an honours or something like that, you are placed in front of a group of your peers and professors who then look at the statistical analysis that you're proposing and the methodology and you're essentially torn to pieces. But this is then a uh, post hoc explanation that uses the same strategy to discredit findings when they don't run in accordance with what I've produced. That's right. And you know, the thing is, by doing it after the fact, like that's a it's a, important that you emphasize that word post hoc because when you want to have that type of criticism, when you want to have that rigor discussion, right, about the analysis, about the methodology, it really should be upfront, right? It needs to be about what you're going to do, not necessarily what you found. Now, there's nothing wrong with still criticizing results after, you know, somebody's repeated something because, you know, you can, you can do the best design. And if there's something that you're missing, some kind, you know, something that's confounding the entire result, that you only really know that until, you know, after the fact. But that doesn't mean that it instantly explains it away. It just means that that gives you the next experiment, right? That that's the next thing that you're going to start testing. So it's, you know, basically re replicate and extend, replicate and extend. Um, but you can't just extend without trying to do that replication first. Why don't we reproduce studies? 
Yeah, that's a good question. So I think some people will say, well, we do replicate studies. We just don't publish those replications. And I think there's some truth to that, although I don't think it's quite to the extent that one would want. So I think part of the reason you don't do it or it doesn't get surfaced is because it's not publishable in the current landscape. And it's not publishable basically because no matter what you find, there's a good chance nobody will ever want to publish it because either you are repeating something that's already been done and thus nobody wants to publish it because they said, oh, well, look, somebody else has already done it. Or if you found a counter result, you run into this issue that we were just talking about. Oh, you must have done something wrong, right? You need to have a really high bar to try to, quote unquote, disprove an original result, which really it's not even what the, the point is, right? The point is to say, I'm trying to get the same result. And if I can't, why can't I? I would say that the part of the issue is that researchers uh, within psychology, I think, and who might be more aware of it, but certainly within uh, medical science, have done the opposite of what science is supposed to be doing. So they look for confirmation rather than look for, to disprove their own hypotheses. Oh, you're 100% right. Oh, no, you're completely right. It, it's completely, and again, I'll speak uh, again in the medical side of things. Uh, that's very much what you see in academia, right? Everybody's looking, and they use those words. They, word, they use the words, I'm looking to prove something, right? Oh, this fits my model. I'm looking for data that supports my model. So you're piecing it together. You're creating stories. Yeah, that's not really research. That's not science, right? That's it's a story, and I think the fact that we even use those words in the community that that itself should be a red flag, right? The fact that we're using these words, we're knowingly doing it, and nobody stops and pauses and say, really, like, should we be doing this? This is not, you know, I get crafting a narrative to communicate results, but if you're if you're grabbing the results that are convenient for you and you're excluding the ones that are not, then you're really just misguiding everybody. You're listening to Deep Trouble, Dr. Mark Halloran, in conversation with Tim Errington from the Centre for Open Science. I think right now, and again, I'm going to speak largely for the U.S. population, which is, you know, where my background comes from, but I think this is across the board, is postdocs, graduate, the the training has essentially become more of a factory, and they've become a, a, a labor source, right, to allow technical work to be done. Um, and so you get technically trained on whatever that new technique is or whatever that area of research is. You're getting more on that technical side. So you can market yourself. You market yourself as a, as a job seeker. Right, right. And I think, you know, there is some, it's not to say that there's no theory. It's the theory of, of science, which is what you're getting at, right? There's a lot of theorizing in terms of how the result fits into the biology, but it doesn't really talk about how they're doing the research to get at that. Right. Like the way that they're crafting that, the way that they're even conducting their experiments, designing them. Nobody gets trained that. And I think we've gotten to this point where we've expanded so much in biomedical research that it's almost lost now. And we need to come back and gain it again. We need to come back and remind ourselves, you know, kind of these fundamental principles of how research is being or supposed to be done and start training that start getting the next generation to have these skills, because if not, we're just going to lose them. Um, and that's actually, it's a, incredibly important because otherwise what we get is we get all these flashy, exciting results, but they're lacking all of that rigor. And, and then we're going to probably keep having these points where, you know, oh, I can't get the same result. I can't get the same result. And I think, you know, we kind of have to stop and ask ourselves, why is that? And there's many reasons. And again, we're not even talking about you know, one of the worst things, which is fraud, which, you know, always confuses me, like, none of this is fraud outright, like, this is just the way that the enterprise has kind of moved. Um, and it drastically needs to change. 
I think that leads into the, the second part of the reproducibility project, which is the cancer biology studies. Could you tell me what's wrong with the scientific incentive structure at the moment? <laughs> There's a lot that's wrong with it. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the the big things that is problematic with it is the high reliance on high profile publications. So I've got to get a paper, I've got to get multiple papers, you know, in Science Nature Cell, right? Or some top, top tier journal, high impact factor. That's right. Let's use the word journal impact factor. And because there's such high pressure, because it essentially dictates your career, it dictates the ability to get grants, to get a job, to get tenure. There's so much pressure to publish at those levels. And and those journals, those exact same journals tend to publish very exciting, novel, flashy, positive, clean stories, right? Things that are just, you know, kind of pushing the boundaries of what we know. And that's really good when it's all pans out. But I think what it can do consciously, subconsciously, right? Because there's plenty of conscious uh, behavior that does this. Like you said, there's a spectrum. But I think it leads people to, to crafting and finding and over, basically over committing, you know, the results that they have. So they know that, oh, I can't have any negative result. So I'm going to only push, put positive results in there. Why should I repeat something? If I find an exciting result once, it's publishable. Forget checking to see if it's, you know, something that I can get again myself, because otherwise I lose that ability to get a, a high profile publication. So I think that's one of the big things is that there's so much pressure to have these lots of positive results in a paper and very clean stories, right? As if it's all tidied up in a bow, even though we know the research is not that tidy, that it essentially brings the worst out of the research process. Instead of sitting there and trying to be more incremental, uh, more rigorous in everything that we're doing, we're almost encouraging researchers to, to cut corners um, to get those very exciting results. Well, publish or perish. Publish or perish, exactly. Um, and so I think that's the main driver. And the reason that's the main driver is because everything else sits around it. So grant agencies look at that, right? Institutions look at that for who they're going to hire, who gets tenure. So it essentially perpetuates itself. And it's really hard to break that cycle. And then you have to ask yourself who you're rewarding. Because, you know, if somebody's doing slow, and I mean slow, not in the sense that it's any like speed, I meant slow in the sense that they're, they're going to make sure that they do a high power design, they're going to spend more resources doing less experiments, but they're going to have more confidence in the results of those experiments. That person actually gets left behind sometimes. And I think that's a shame. Or that person finds negative results. They dig through and they were like, oh, I keep, you know, I find some some exciting positive results, but I don't fully know everything. So I can't get it published in a high venue. And we actually discredit that person, right? Oh, you're not a good scientist because you didn't publish in science, cell or nature. But really what we're rewarding are people who are able to do that. And it doesn't mean that, you know, the pe- there are amazing scientists who publish in cell nature science. But I just think that we shouldn't expect every single person to do that. Well, man, let's talk about that. So uh, the reproducibility uh, project, 50 cancer papers in nature, science and cell. These are some of the highest impact journals in the world. These are career makers for people. So in my time working in labs, most of the conversations in lab meetings were around excitement about a new result. Can we get into nature? Can we get into science? People hurriedly working towards that objective. The replication finds only two out of five papers are reproducible. That's 40%. 
Yeah, maybe we can step back even before our project and actually think about what inspired our project, which is there were two white papers from the pharmaceutical companies, Bayer and Amgen. And this isn't as if they went out setting to do a project on reproducibility. This is what they do in-house before they start investing millions of dollars trying to figure out if they should you know, continue research and development on a new drug. They try to basically say, can we get a similar result? Can we extend it uh, to the population that we're going to target? And they saw very low rates, you know, both of them, you know, 25% was the high mark um, in terms of what they were able to replicate. But the catch there was that there was, there was nothing to look at. Um, it was a statement, it was a number, um, but nobody was able to see those results, know what papers that they were talking about. You could, you could guess, but you didn't really know what they were doing. And so that that's actually what inspired us to do this project was to say, well, let's have an open discussion about this, whether we want to or not. Let's be scientists and look ourselves in the mirror and say, what are we doing right and what are we not doing right? And you're absolutely right. You know, let's grab the most impactful papers. And you're right. The ones that we grabbed, we did citations and like readership, all metric scores. And most of them are cell, nature and science papers, which you know doesn't surprise you know anybody. Um, but I think we might as well go after those because they're the ones that are creating the most attention. So let's you know you would hope that those are the ones that actually are going to be the most reproducible because they're being read and cited so much. And I doubt they're being done that because they're not exciting. Held to the highest standard as well. Yeah. And when we published our first results last year, and even you know just published a couple more uh, last week, you know the big thing that that everybody does want to do, and the same thing in psychology is to say, oh, did it replicate or did it not? You know, and something that I've learned very quickly with this project and continue to learn is that's not very easy to define because sometimes it's very obvious, oh, look, you know, they found something, we see nothing. But it all occurs for various reasons. Um, and a lot of it, I think, is that there, you know, is a, basically a lack of appreciation of biological variability that nobody's really taking that into account. Um, people are very excited about, oh, I found an exciting result and I, you know, I, I'm quick to publish, but. I think what this project's already showing is that we, you know, really need to make sure that that wasn't just some fluke from a biological, you know, what if, right? Oh, the cells just happen to behave differently that day. Um, and actually having somebody else do it again is a good example of, you know, how we can increase the rigor of that design. And the same thing is true. Like we may not get the same result because, well, the cells did not behave the same. And so then we have to ask ourselves, why is that happening, right? Which one, you know, do we quote unquote believe? Which one do we follow up on? Um, but I think what we get more around is, you know, that there's a lot to be learned by going back and being, you know, very meticulous in how we obtain the result, not just the result we had. So there's all this attention on, like you were just saying, oh, I found an exciting positive result. That's that's my ticket to the big nature paper, the big cell, the big science paper. And what we should be constantly asking ourselves is, uh, how did I obtain that? And how confident am I that that's, that methodology is not leading me the wrong way? Am I looking for evidence that disconfirms it? Yeah, exactly. And I think that's the catch is that when we find, you know, this project's a good example of it. When, I, when we publish a result that is in agreement with what was, you know, the original result, peer reviewers, you know, rarely hear anybody, you know, kind of raise a hand or anything. Everybody's like, oh, yep, that looks good. Yet there were multiple differences between the two still because you can never do the same thing twice. But with the instant we get a different result, then everybody's looking to find out what the replication did wrong. And I find that fascinating, right? It just illustrates there's this obsession with, with the, the outcome, not the way that we got there. So the same way we're trying to sit there and say, oh, I wonder why you did not get a positive result. We should be doing that. It's the exact same reason why we say, huh, I wonder why I got a positive result. Like, is that something that I really am 100% confident in? Or is, it, or is there something else that could explain it? 
or is it it was a fluke right it's a one-off like something something was different that day in the lab or the cells behave differently or the mice behave differently um so i think that that gets to the point of how replication helps us as a research community you're listening to deep trouble dr mark halloran in conversation with tim errington from the center for open science You've got to keep in mind as well that we're not talking about abstract things. So this is this is work in cancer biology. So every person who applies for a grant and most papers end with the tired line that this may one day lead to a therapeutic that's that's effective. Is that true? That those papers all end with that line? <laughs> Almost all of them, yeah. That's the thing about the generalizability and, and going. At some point, you start to realize that if it is something that can only occur in the tiniest of settings, then what value does it have in terms of being a therapeutic? One of the responses, I forget where it was, I can try to find it. That was when we were, you know, had all the press around those first five publications that I thought was kind of interesting because they kind of, it was the same point and this person I think missed it a little bit. But they were, uh, they were saying how they are consultants for, you know, biotech and pharma companies. And um, they basically say, whenever I talk to a client, you know, They've got some line of research um, and, and they're you know, contracting it out at, say, some contract research organization. I tell them never to move in the middle of the experiment. You always stay there and you finish everything at one CRO because if you move to the other one, it never replicates. You have to stay in one spot and then that's how you get all your results before you just and that's how you move your your product forward. Because if you sit there and you try to have somebody else pick up the pieces, you know, something's not right. And so it's exactly what you're saying, which is like, oh, my gosh, like if you can't pick it up and move it to another location, how are you ever going to how is this ever going to help anybody in the human population, which is incredibly diverse. Right. So if we're not embracing that earlier on in the research process, we're setting ourselves up to fail and. And if you actually look at clinical trial, you know, success rates, we do. We fail a lot in the clinical trials, especially phase two. And you have to start to ask yourself, like, how much of it is because we're not translating, right? Which there's always going to be some, right? This, these are models. We're testing in animals. We're testing in cell lines. We're not testing in humans. But I do think there's a lot that probably fails because of what we're talking about, which is nobody's putting that rigor earlier on in the process to actually say, oh, is this just something that occurs in one location under one setting and can't, you know, extend beyond it? Because if it can't, then it stands no chance. It'll never, ever work in a human population. We should stop it. <laughs> My experience was that to succeed in biological science, these are highly intelligent people doing extremely technical work. There's no mistake about that. Where it doesn't seem to work is the statistical analysis between two groups, whether there's a, di a difference between two groups, whether they're cells or they're mice. Uh, and to me, it seemed that there was, uh, we've touched on this earlier, there's a statistical illiteracy that runs through medical science, um, which seems a harsh term, but that was my experience of it. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you. And, and, and the whole thing, because you're completely right that there's uh, a lot of important like even when you were beginning apart a lot of technical importance that has to go into any of these experiments but i think you're i think you're spot on part of it could be that you know think of the examples that you were just giving right there are a lot of big effects very like they are either there or it's not right there's there's these you know on off um kind of criteria and i think because there are such big things that have occurred in the past and still do occur i think it starts to 
seem as if statistical analysis is just, I think many researchers think it's in the way. Like, oh, you know, either either there is a result or there isn't a result and I can see it. <laughs> um, and, and of course, then that gets around data presentation and, 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 but it, and all the other things that tie into statistical analysis and inferences, which is, oh, well, you can't, you know, you can't massage your data. You can't throw things out if it's inconvenient for you. But I think there is this thought like, oh, it's it's going to be big when I see it. And and I think there's something true to that, right? Which is statistical significance does not equal biological significance. Those two are separate. Just like same thing with, you know, the exact same thing exists in the clinic, right? Clinical significance is different than statistical significance. It's stats is a tool. Um, but if you use it incorrectly, it leads you the wrong way. And I think you're spot on that. I think there is a... Uh, there's, I got no education in it. That's for one thing. I think there's just no education around it. There's not little awareness of the importance of it. And I think that's starting to change. Um, and I think that how it ties back into the way you even design your experiments, you know, the randomness that has to occur, right? So I could have the best statistically designed experiment, but if I'm not randomizing properly, that confounds the entire thing. So I think these are all these methodological and statistical issues are really kind of getting around the way that we conduct our research. And they all, you know, could definitely use some improvement. Because your background is biology. My background is biology, yeah. What was your statistical education when you were doing your biology degree? My graduate degree, yeah. So in, in my graduate degree, which was partly at Berkeley, partly at, at Virginia, there was no formal statistical training that it was required of me. Right, so right there. The fact that it, that, that was the, the borderline, that's, that's how things start. And that most labs would go to a biostatistician after they did their experiment, right, which is... It's a good way to perform an autopsy, but not a good way to help design an experiment. And so a lot of mine was reaching in and seeking out information. And I think that's probably true for most, at least in the U.S., right? Most biomedical researchers, if you're, unless your field requires it, most seek it out themselves. And I think that's not really the way that it should be done, right? If everybody's, if you're using it, you should know exactly how to use it. Otherwise, you're... You know, there's nice plug and play applications that you can use. But if you're not aware of, you know, the implications of it and you're just digging around looking for P less than 0.05 because, you know, that gets you a nice paper that doesn't really do you any good. And that point, you should just not even do the statistics, in my opinion. I mean, it's certainly uh, there's there seems to be a lack. And I know this is something that the Center for Open Science is trying to address in terms of trying to increase statistic literacy, particularly within mm -hmm. biological sciences. But I worked with people who were top geneticist top people in their field who would have done two weeks in a stats course to shore them up before they were running you know running experiments in their phds and their postdocs i gave one researcher a head postdoc a, a book from psychology on statistics and she just said i don't understand any of it so there's a fundamental problem with this to me because this has real world implications i mean this is not as though it's just a waste of money as well the, the issue for this was that a lot of these drugs went into clinical application with, with patients and had no effect, but some of the drugs actually had harmful effects on people and had to be discontinued. This has real-world effects. Yeah, no, you're completely right. You know, I think even in the cases where there's not harm caused, the fact that we have patients taking drugs that somebody could have gone back and you know, basically done it the way that you were just describing it. And it never would have gotten that far, at least at that stage, unless, you know, there was some modification that would increase its efficacy. You're actually giving that patient hope as well. And you're taking them away from something else that could maybe be 
more advantage. You know, even if it's not harmful, it could be better for them. And I think that's a lot of harm that's caused in this entire process. There's a lot of people who are starting to write about this exact issue. And I think something that comes up that, that kind of, again, it gets back at, at the incentives, it gets back at the way that we as scientists communicate, conduct things is, I think there's a lot of people at these decisions of when to move to first and human, where because it's published in a peer-reviewed journal, it's considered rigorous, right? That by definition, right, because I've published in a peer-reviewed journal, that means it, it it's passed the sniff test and it's well done. But I think you're you're spot on. That's that's not how it works. That's not that is not the best way to go about and decide what to move forward with and what not to. Especially when you know it's only done on a couple animals. Like we've had a couple um, replications where the original results were on like three or four animals, right? And you're just like, oh my gosh, like. This is this is going to be interesting to see what happens when we crank the number up and, and see if we can find a similar effect. And I think, you know, just because it's published in a peer reviewed journal does not mean it's quote unquote true. Right. Published does not equal true. But we have this mentality that and that's researchers and anybody who's a consumer of it that, oh, that must mean it's true. And that means I can move forward. And I think that's just it's. It's kind of a waste of resources. And again, it's amazing to say that because you think of everything that we do, how successful we are. You know, again, if you focus very much in, in biomedicine, right? Like we have made massive advances, continue to make massive advances. And that's not what we're talking about, right? We're saying at the rate at which we make those advances, yet we're still allowing all of this to happen. We could definitely be a lot more efficient in our resources and what we can accomplish if we spend more earlier on in better designs, you know, and, and putting more resources in those questions than pushing them, you know, try to get them into the clinic as fast as possible just to continue to fail and waste more resources and hope and potential harm. Yeah, you're absolutely right. There's, you know, very immediate consequences to everything that goes on here. You're listening to Deep Trouble, Dr. Mark Halloran, in conversation with Tim Errington from the Centre for Open Science. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly, it's not a... Uh, it's not a critique of science itself. The scientific method is uh, the best method that we have to understand the world. But it, it certainly is, is, as you said, that if we've made so many advances so far, if we were more rigorous. The other issue that I think is that when you've got an incentivized system where, I mean, part of the reason that people are developing therapeutics and rushing them through into clinical trials is that that will attract the grant money. So part of the issue is from the community. So you have uh, not-for-profit organisations set up around cancer or motor neuron or Alzheimer's disease, and they really only want to give money to the researcher who at least pays lip service to the fact that they're going to produce a therapeutic. At the very least, some of these diseases, particularly with devastating neurodegenerative diseases, there really needs to be a focus in funding that really basic science to really get the understanding and also funding science that is really exploratory because I think what the funding structure actually does is for a lot of labs and lab labs it makes them play it really safe so they don't want to take a risk on on going down a new pathway because if they have a year of no results well that might be the end of their career yeah, no, you're you're absolutely right. Yeah, I'm glad to hear you bring that um, that you know basic understanding. Uh, maybe a year and a half, two years ago, I'm blanking on who it was for as a MD from UCSF. They had a great op-ed in the Washington Post here, 
making that exact same argument when they were talking about, you know, the dismal rate of phase two trials. And basically, you know, their thing is we need to stop pushing it. We need to spend and we need to properly, you know, set up the system so that basic research into the biological understanding of what's occurring, that we get that we reward that, that we we look for more researchers who are doing that. And I think you're absolutely right, which is the system has to be set up to say, you know, what research is that its intent is we are just we're looking for what potentially is there doing incredibly basic research, incredibly exploratory research. You don't need to have some exciting, positive result. Like we want to basically know what, what is potentially a result. But then when it comes time to get closer and closer to the pipeline, we have to start really increasing it and say, well, now we're going to start laying our cards down up front, right? What do we think is actually going to happen here? Because if not, if we're not on the right path and you know, it doesn't have the application to be able to move into the clinic, you know, and if we're not set up at the preclinical stage to do that, then, you know, we're wasting it. We're kind of spinning our wheels a little bit. So it, it seems as though you can go out and you can be rigorous, but the culture really doesn't want to take it on or hear it because it's too hard. I understand it's expensive. Yeah, no, you're completely right. I mean, one of the things that we're doing in the Cancer Biology Project was uh, trying to align the incentive system a little bit. But basically to, to still reward that researcher is is having a different publication outlet. So we use this in the Cancer Biology Project with eLife um, called Registered Reports. And so this is exactly, you know, in some ways, this I love it because it solves a lot of these issues. So it says, you know, for any given experimental question and design, you know, I get that peer-reviewed before I conduct the research. And again, it has to get accepted at that stage, um, and, and it will get through revisions just like the typical publication process. But once that's accepted then the results, no matter what they are, are guaranteed in principle acceptance. Where do we go to from here? I mean, uh, if we're in a reproducibility crisis, what can the Center for Open Science do and what can we do to change the culture? In terms of what anyone can do is I think no matter who it is at any level in their career, the more that you can expose all your results, I think that's going to help a lot. Um, and I think people can start doing that today. There's no reason not to with all the everything that's online and available, including what we develop and, and all these other resources. Start exposing more and more of what you've done and including what doesn't work. So, you know, if you've tried 10 antibodies and you found one that was sufficient based on the you know criteria that you've defined, expose the rest so that way somebody else doesn't waste their resources trying to dig around for antibodies. So I think that helps in terms of the efficiency and how somebody kind of arose at why they got the result they did, right? The path that they took. I think education is probably the biggest thing that we can do. The training of graduate students, you know, even postdocs, right? Early career researchers really needs to have more and more emphasis on this rigor um, in terms of design and statistics. And like you said, like we're, we've been working with organizations on this, you know, offering free statistical and methodological consulting ourselves to basically try to help with that. And again, it's all about doing it at the beginning of the design, not at, at the end, uh, because it's about how you improve your experiment. What What is the sample size you need? What is, you know, the considerations that you should take into account before you conduct that research? I think that's the catch, right? The scientific process is essentially the best tool we have, and it's a great tool. Um, but the problem is, is that it's humans who are using it. And we are we have a lot of biases that we have to hold ourselves against because we're very easy to fool. Um, and so we can't fool ourselves. And so by stating what you're going to do up front before you do it, you're trying to stop yourself from fooling yourself. And then aligning that with journals and the, and the incentive system, I think, is is a way to really kind of move everything forward. 
right? How do we actually allow it so that when a researcher does all of these practices, does the, the properly designed experiment, how do we ensure that that researcher still gets rewarded, right? How do they still get the publication? How do they still get the grant? How do they still get the career? Because that's the research that we want to incentivize and that's the type of researcher that we want. And so this is going to take a long time because we're actually talking about culture change, right? We're actually talking about how do you change the current scientific culture into a culture that is essentially rewarding of this type of behavior. I think it's uh, it's admirable, but extremely difficult just from my observations you know i saw phd students who were who had done undergraduate degrees and who were highly talented and who happened to, and were rigorous and happened to land in a project that produced no results over the course of their phd i think that we have a problem in terms of we we kind of need a, a journal of the null hypothesis where people can publish no results so that other people don't, as you said, endlessly try to replicate things that don't work. But then I also saw other researchers who had left when people had tried to reproduce their results are reproducible. And so it was, it, there was a distinct possibility there that people were committing open fraud just to get through a PhD. And it would lead on to a career. There was no incentive to not. Right. Well, that's a good example. And that's a great example of the scientific method is great. But the problem is, is we're humans. We've got biases. And if we're not protecting ourselves, if we're not blinding, not randomizing, not holding as much as we can at bay, uh, even the best intentioned researchers are still going to have this problem. That's actually what Glenn Begley, who's actually he's in Australia again now. That was the big thing that he did in, at Amgen when they went and tried to have the original researchers try to replicate their experiments. Um, so this was the pharmaceutical company report back in uh, 2011. And um, that was the main thing that, that he had them do was, you guys can do your experiments again, but we're going to blind you. We're not going to tell you which tube contains the truck, right? There's so many opportunities, but especially when there's any subjectivity to it, even when there's not, knowing what you hope to find is is really systemic and it's a problem that needs to get shifted and it gets it gets back to training essentially and awareness i mean you can kind of see it from the perspective of a post phd student looking to get a postdoc gone through an undergraduate degree there's massive amounts of competition for jobs uh, the job market is incredibly unstable so people are living on six or 12 month contracts they're in their PhD, they set a project looking to find uh, you know, some sort of therapeutic effect for a drug that's been developed in the lab and all eyes are on them to get some sort of result. That could be their career. Them getting a null result could be the difference between, and a positive result is the difference between them getting a postdoc and not getting a postdoc. That's a massive oh, yeah. amount of pressure. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. And so they may be well intended but it simply encourages the shortcut. It encourages not looking. It encourages all sorts of things that are um, counterproductive. Yeah, with our project, just as a heads up on that, like we're hopeful by the end of this year, maybe at beginning next year, to have it published because um, we're trying to wrap up everything right now. So uh, I'm sure we'll make some more waves again when that happens. I'm sure we'll have some upset people too. Well, one of the points that was made to me by a scientist was... Uh, they said uh, this project is funded by John Arnold, who's a venture capitalist, and so is this in some way biased or something like that? That, uh, that or it's in his best interest if he wants to invest in pharmaceutical companies to discredit drugs coming out of one area and not another. So, 
Mm. I don't know whether you'd comment on that. Yeah, I'll give you a quick comment on that. So one is, you know, there's no uh, no influence from our funder on which studies we did because it's, they weren't handpicked. They were picked through a, a process that's exposed. People can see it. And when we publish all of this, like it's independent from them. So we, we definitely don't have any influence from our funder in terms of the direction of the project. Every single paper we publish, it's in there that that we have that. Um, but then nonetheless, they're publishing us. So there's there's a good reason to do that. I'll give you the reason why they funded the center and probably why they funded this project is when the Arnold Foundation, when John and Laura started to give away their money, which was not relatively that long ago, they wanted to figure out where to invest their money. And they were very focused in nutrition research. And um, they basically couldn't quite, basically from John's background, right, basically trying to, you know, being a very, being an incredibly smart person and, and wanting to hedge his bets on where, because you can't put, you can't fund everything. So who am I going to fund? Who am I going to invest in? And they basically realized as they dug farther and farther into it, that there was a problem. Right, that there was a fundamental problem in the way the research was being done, and that there are essentially groups that are propped up, all built on questionable results at best. And that led them into essentially investing in organizations like us, like Metrics at Stanford, to basically say, well, geez, what can we trust? Like, we have to investigate, we have to change the way that research is done, because clearly, you know, just because somebody published some one study doesn't mean that that's what we should all believe. And so that's the reason why they even funded this project was to sit there and actually not to point and look and say, oh, I want to discredit a certain area of research that I'm going to invest in. It's more about saying, how do we even know anything that's coming out of science unless we're really rigorous about the way that we're doing it? And we can only do that if we evaluate it, if we actually study it and try to change it. And so that's about the best I can say from it, because I actually find that makes perfect sense, right? Like if I had a, which I don't, if I had that much money and I was giving it away, I'd want to be sure that I'm not just giving it because it sounds good. I'm giving it because it's based on sound science. So it's potentially a, um, I don't know how often that happens, it's potentially a paradigm shift instigated by someone outside of science who had no vested interest in it, well, apart from their own vested interest of wanting to do well financially. Right. Well, and part of basically saying if I'm going to give my money away and I'm going to try to make a difference, <laughs> I better make sure that it's making a difference. And I think that's basically what it's built on. And that's probably the most fascinating thing is that it's not just, you know, the Lauren John Arnold Foundation. There's other private foundations who, you know, basically that's the only place Gates Foundation does a little bit of replication research and um, uh, impact evaluations. And I find it fascinating that none of the government foundations, publicly funded foundations, have kind of entered it outside of the the Netherlands, like a health organization that just recently is doing a test of this. Um, and and just, I just find that kind of fascinating. And it gets back to like, well, that's what, how do you change the machine, right? Like, how do you change if all researchers are getting incentivized to, you know, to do new experiments, do novel results? Nobody's ever asked to try to replicate something that's, you know. The funders aren't encouraging it either. Well, I'm hoping it changes with one public conversation at a time. Yeah. No, and I think you're right. I think it's, and, and sadly, it's going to probably be slow. But I think the more people that can uh, continue to have conversations about this and raise issues, I think it's only going to lead to the better outcome in the long run. It's going to take a while to get there. Well, uh, anything worth doing is worth doing well, apparently. <laughs> um, thanks very much. I hope you um, have a good day. Thanks. Well, good day for you. So, Mark, 
I found that fascinating. That was great. Uh, one public conversation at a time, hey? Uh, <laughs> was that just uh, one of the public conversations that we can start this with? Because it's not a subject that's often covered, is it? People accept the results of experiments. They don't think about the need to reproduce them. It doesn't come up in the public conversation. I mean, mm. I, I found the Centre for Open Science and Tim Errington through Facebook, I think, I think Mark Zuckerberg might have shared an article about the centre. I think it's important to note that the Gates Foundation is also embarking on replication and reproducibility. That tells you everything mm. about the state of play, uh, that government organisations are being left behind. These are the leaders. You don't hear these conversations on the ABC. You don't hear them on Science Friction. It's very hard to cover these sorts of topics because it takes very, very specific knowledge. Indeed. And there's huge forces behind these things too, isn't there? There's obviously huge forces behind these organisations that are going for checking reproducibility, but there's huge forces behind science itself and having to publish. It's a cultural problem mm. in terms of the way that we value science. I mean, part of the problem is the environment that scientists have to operate under. I, I talked to Jennifer Byrne about the reduction of funding uh, from government bodies from 30% to 9%, uh, mm. the pressure to produce results. positive results, results is incredible. Mm. And also from philanthropic organisations, well-meaning organisations, so mm. organisations that are set up to raise money from the public for cancer, for neurodegenerative disease, Alzheimer's, motor neuron disease. The reason I went into my PhD, my background was psychology and I went into biochemistry was because I had a relative who died of motor neuron disease. And there are people who are incredibly dedicated incredibly talented, incredibly intelligent working in these fields on these problems that are incredibly complicated, intractable. Mm. Yeah. But the culture, the pressure of the culture, the lack of funding and the lack of reproducibility is creating a problem uh, which has real-world effects. I talk about drugs that make it into phase two trials, let alone drugs that do nothing but drugs that actually have harmful effects, which is when you look through the literature, you can find that. We can do better than this. Science is already providing us with lots of really, really important solutions to this. And the, and the point of this is not that science doesn't do that. It's that if we funded science better, if we valued and respected scientists more, could we actually see cures for these diseases in maybe 20 or 30 years' time? Mm that does not seem possible necessarily in the current environment. Tantalisingly close, though, you would, you would think. I mean, 30 years isn't long in science, is it? 30 years is not long in science unless the paradigms... Remain lose, as they are. Remain yeah, as they are. Yeah. Like, you hear about the successful trials, but you don't see the innumerable phase two clinical trials that mm. fail. And the, the point of this is that they probably didn't need to get to phase two trials into humans because if the studies had have been done more rigorously at the preclinical stage, then it wouldn't need to get to that point. Mm. We need to focus, particularly with some of these really devastating diseases on some really basic molecular biology and really get the understanding there rather than aiming for this therapeutic. The therapeutic would be good, but scientists are pitching this to these organisations and the government to try and attain funding. 
and also playing it safe as well to some extent because you can't afford to take a risk on a really innovative project necessarily, particularly early on in your career or a mid-career scientist because if you don't get the results and the papers with the impact factor, then you're gone. Your career's over. Career's over. Well, look, an incredibly important conversation, Mark. I want to commend you once again for doing it. And I want to thank Tim Errington for being with us in Deep Trouble. Now, should we just briefly cover who we're going to do next week? Next week, we're talking to Professor Bain Atwood, who's a historian at Monash University. And his interest, his field of research is the history and the culture of the Jajarurung people, as well as the history of colonisation in the local area, so the goldfields area, and the protectorate system which was overseen by the Chief Protector, George A. Robinson, and the protector for our region, as we well know, was Edward Stone Parker. Yes, we certainly do. So brilliant. We'll call that part two of our series on Jaja Wurrung after Uncle Rick Nelson. Some sequels are equals. <laughs> brilliant. I like that. All right. Thank you again, Mark. Um, uh, look forward. Thank you for being with us on Deep Trouble for another episode tune in next time it's going to be awesome deep trouble is produced by steve charman in the studios of main fm castle maine